Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, happy Pluto Demoted Day and welcome to the 85th episode of Movie Oubliette, the circumplanetary podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, going to secret screenings in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, somehow resurrecting my old 2008 MacBook laptop from its dusty <laughs> grave down here in Melbourne, Australia. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> We focus on sci-fi, horror and fantasy films because we love taking hallucinatory drugs while fighting off a zombie horde on a planet with a third of Earth's gravity. Mm. Dan, how are you? Oh, good. <laughs> I'm just... Yeah, so I've uh, resurrected my old laptop from 2008. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like a time capsule of the last time I used it was 2012. 2013 maybe oh wow so yeah eight years ago did you find any gems on there just old photos which is uh always saddening because of how youthful and skinny i used to be (laughs) (laughs) but you know the memories yes nostalgia oh well that's good yeah and it still works yeah, so the battery was was completely shot. So I bought a new battery, uh, and it yeah, it turned on. I didn't think it would, mm. but it does. I've put in an SSD, and I'm going to put in some new RAM, and it's now going to become my like note taking laptop. So cool. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's always good not to be in a recycling, replacing everything type of mode, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, there are certain things that you just don't really need upgrades for, like, you know, Microsoft Word. That's fine. I can just <laughs> keep using it for that. Um, so you've been attending secret screenings? Yeah, so the all-you-can-eat cinema a membership that I have, occasionally it gives you access to these secret screenings, and oh. they did one this week. And I went in very excited and I had a list of films in my head, you know, could it be Dune? Could it be Ghostbusters? Oh. But it turned out to be Free Guy, which comes out like this weekend. (laughs) So it's like, oh, okay. I want to see that. I saw it three days earlier than anybody else. (laughs) I'd still, I I want to see that. It looks funny. It's very good. No, it's very good. For a popcorn munching summer blockbuster feel-good movie, it's really good fun. Mm-hmm. It's good to see Ryan Reynolds playing a character who's uh, naive and and sort of sweet oh. rather than the foul-mouthed, uh, lascivious guy that he is in Deadpool. Right. So, yeah. It's just a big, gleaming smile of a movie, and it's great fun to sort oh. of bounce along in. Great. So, yeah. Can't wait to watch it. Highly recommended. So any big gleaming balls of fun in our mailbag, Conrad? Oh, yes. <laughs> we And we have some big gleaming new patrons too. Oh. So hello to Brent, Brian and Chris, who became patrons in the last couple of weeks. Really appreciate your support. Thanks for coming on board. Yes, yes. Welcome aboard. Mm. And we got an email from Chris as well. And he says... 
Conrad and Dan, I'm delighted to see that you've released the quiet earth from its decades-long entombment in the oubliette. (laughs) Back in the day, every American video rental store had at least one copy of this obscure gem, and I rented it many times with my friends. Your review brought me back to beer-soaked movie nights with buddies, which usually ended with the question, what the hell was that ending about? Uh. This movie really is a classic, and it's a pity it's flown under the radar for so long. I haven't seen it in ages, and now I'm inspired to make some microwave popcorn and find it online. Oh, oh. I'm so surprised how well-received, like, globally this film is, and it just disappeared in New Zealand. So strange. It is, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not aware of any following it from here in the UK either, but uh, obviously Chris in America was watching it on a regular basis mm. over there. So mm-hmm. it's great to hear. So good memories. Yeah. Also on The Quiet Earth, Telemar said, wow, The Quiet Earth, now that's something I've not seen in years. That final scene still sticks in my mind. Uh, that final scene, yes. I know. And Wicked Person said, absolutely never thought that that was Saturn. I assumed that it means the Earth has been transported into an entirely different dimension and galaxy, leaving almost all human beings floating Earthless in space. Oh, wow. So the Earth itself (laughs) has been transported. Yeah. And all the life is just floating in space, freezing in the space climate. Yeah, (laughs) instant. Yeah, heat death. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, scary. So that's a that's an interesting interpretation. Mm. So yeah. And when we were talking about discovering more New Zealand sci-fi movies like uh, Vincent Ward's The Navigator, Bad Taste of course from Peter Jackson, mm-hmm. Battle Truck, which I've never, I've heard, never of, heard of, that. and the zombie film Death Warmed Up, which I've never heard those of. Those two, those last two I'd never heard of. I am surprised yeah. Isaac has somehow unearthed these, these gems. I know. So Phil, uncle, said, I only know bad taste, but the other three look very interesting. My mind's eye first read David Lynch as playing Spider in Death Warmed Up, <sighs> but alas, <laughs> it's actually David Lech. I don't know whether he's famous NZ actor. Mm, mm, I don't know. Before my time. (laughs) Maybe he Uh, was. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of interest in The Quiet Earth. And also on our Minnesota, talking about the Fear Street trilogy, I asked people what their favourite was. Copper Top Dan said, 1978, and it's not particularly close. So... Mm, I agree. I agree. I thought I definitely thought that was the strongest of the three. Yeah. And Eddie Coulter agrees as well. I enjoyed all of them, but if I had to choose, it would have to be 1978 because of the setting. So mm-hmm. there you go. Very popular choice. Mm. So yeah, thanks everyone for your mailbag. We love hearing from you. So please do keep them coming. Yeah, please do. I suppose I ought to be coming over to the Oubliette to find out what movie we're doing next. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Wow. I'm in a strange red environment and it's very dusty. Oh, okay. I think I can see the movie over there. Hang on. What's this cloud coming over the horizon? And what's that sound in the distance? Smells like bad breath. Okay, I'm coming back. Okay. Damn, girl. I like you already. You better wipe your feet, Conrad. Oh, yeah. There's red dust everywhere. (laughs) It's all over my jeans. (laughs) So what do you have? 
So I have with me Ghost of Mars, which is the 2001 American science fiction action horror film directed and scored by John Carpenter, starring Natasha Henstridge, Ice Cube, Jason Statham, Pam Greer, Clea Duval, and Joanna Cassidy. Oh, wow. This is our second Carpenter film that we're, we're going to be covering? No, it's third. Third, I think, yeah. We did Prince of Darkness and we did Mouth of Madness yes, too. that's so, right. Yeah. So what's this one about? So the year is 2176. Mars has been colonised and mankind has handed over control to womankind. When police officer Lieutenant Melanie Ballard is sent to a remote mining outpost to transport a notorious prisoner named Desolation Williams, her unit finds the town deserted, signs of a brutal massacre and a ragtag bunch of survivors in the cells. She discovers via a flashback in a flashback in a flashback (laughs) that miners have unleashed a deadly fog filled with ghostly things that assimilate human beings, turn them into death metal video extras and drive them to an assault on her precinct. Mm -hmm. Can the criminals and cops put their differences aside and escape from Mars? Find out. <laughs> oh, very subtle, Conrad. <laughs> yeah. There are a few references sort of buried in there. <laughs> yeah. Hope you listeners know what he's talking about. <laughs> mm. And to kick off our discussion, we'll start off with a very special interview we had with a very special guest. Yes, indeed. After the break. Yeah. We're thrilled today to be joined by an artist, writer, producer and master of her own comic book empire who began her career as a script supervisor working on films as wide-ranging as The Incredible Melting Man, Sixteen Candles and The Outsiders and eventually graduated or was forced into the role of producer on six films directed by a certain John Carpenter, including today's topic, Ghosts of Mars. We're very excited to welcome Sandy King Carpenter. Hello. Nice to be here. It's very exciting to speak with you, especially on the anniversary, 20 years since the release of Ghosts of Mars. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like it was that long ago? No, not at all. I have no sense of the passage of time anyway. It feels like yesterday that we were in New Mexico in the middle of a gypsum mine that we spray painted red. Right. I can imagine all the the dust was just everywhere. Oh, yeah. And then you add to that that every day during prep when I was driving out to the location, the art department had, you know, we wound up using biodegradable beet juice. And I would see a whole other swath of this pristine gypsum mine painted bright red and I would just kind of go oh god please let it wash out please let it wash out right. <laughs> how much plaster can we turn into pink flamingos if this doesn't work right <laughs> this, this is going to be rough yeah start a garden ornament business yeah, yeah. I, I thought you know what do we do you know we, we tested it we've done all this but this is 55 acres Oh, wow. Because the only other place anyone has successfully shot Mars is in uh, Wadi Rum in Jordan Uh for The Martian, Mm. which is spectacular. And I mean, they they obviously, you know, they won. But, yeah, when you're trying to look for where you can get 
desolate, no plants, red earth. Mm. You've got to create it. Yeah, yeah sure. Course. I mean, beet juice, does that smell? No, actually it didn't. Okay, mm. that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> The location and the sets look absolutely incredible, like a real full-scale environment, something that you can't imagine somebody taking on now. It would usually be digital, a lot of it. Just how challenging was it to create Mars on Earth? Well, the biggest thing was finding a place. We had done vampires in New Mexico, Mm. and the guy who'd been our location manager had then become head of the film commission and said, okay, consider us. And I said, dude, there's no red dirt in New Mexico. And he goes, there could be if you went here. And I said, yeah, it's all white. Brought in the production designer and went through all these things. And the tribal elders at the Zia Pueblo, who actually owned that white mesa, it's a national monument, Mm -hmm. were great. And we made our deal with them. So really, that was the biggest consideration. How do we get a 360 degrees working town Mm. that you can go in and out of the buildings, that you can launch assaults from, that you can have all the action that we were going to have and run vehicles through and then blow up? (laughs) Yeah. And and it's not going to be accomplished with just a CG green screen. Exactly. You don't get that throw. You couldn't have the whole assault by Big Daddy Mars and, and you know, all the warriors and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the sort of atmosphere of the film because it was all shot at night, right? Was that quite a challenge to sort of coordinate? No, you just got to wake everybody up. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them awake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that goes with the job. Yeah, sure. So to go back right to the very beginning, how did the movie come about in the first place? Because I read that it was originally supposed to be the third entry in the Snake Plissken story. Yeah. But you never know whether it's just something that somebody says and then everybody keeps repeating it in every article. <laughs> after no, that. no, somebody just made that up. It, it was just another story that we decided to do. Right. They had no connection. No. Now, when you set out to do a Snake Plissken story, you do a Snake Plissken story. Yeah. This was far more of a matriarchal assault movie. It's a Western on Mars with women. Yeah. In terms of the casting of the film, Natasha Henstridge is an interesting choice. I don't think she'd been in an action role before, but she's really riveting and she's incredibly physical in the movie. And I I read that she came in late to save the day when the original cast actress had to drop out. What happened there and, and how did Natasha come into the frame? Well, our original actress, you know, was injured doing some physical stuff. And it was a real strenuous role that required a real athletic person. Mm -hmm. And Natasha had done species and she'd done other things. She was really fit and she was real game. And she was charismatic. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a great fit against uh, Jason Statham, who was also real fit. You know, he's an ex-Olympic diver. And our stunt coordinator, Jeff Amata, is great at playing to people's strengths. Mm. And our actors, you know, were training when they weren't on set. Right. Our, our stunt coordinator is known for putting together fight routines and encounters where some of the warriors were stunt people. Like Richard Citrone, who was, who was Big Daddy Mars, you know, goes as a stunt Batman on Instagram and stuff, if you want to follow him. And <laughs> yeah. Chad Stileski, who now directs all the John Wick movies, mm. uh, was one of the guys fighting in the train. 
So you have those people and you put them with your actors and they work out together and Jeff designs these fights so that people don't get hurt and yet you get a real dynamic workout. Right, mm. yeah, yeah. Because it's a pretty massive cast of extras and all those big crowd battle scenes. That must have been a challenge. Well, you choose really carefully, and for the most part, they're not extras. Sure. You know, there's sure. some background folks running by and stuff that are extras. But mm-hmm. just like when we did Big Trouble in Little China, there were a bunch of martial arts masters and grandmasters in those alley fights. Right. So you're building an illusion from the ground up very carefully yeah Uh and do it all safely as well because i remember natasha mentioned on the dvd commentary that she became ill during filming and she name checked you as being the person who made sure that she was looked after and said stop let's take a break oh yeah no she came down with the flu and it was just like no 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 no. okay this is one of those times that insurance shutdowns were made for bring in the doctors and then once you're back, let's make sure we have the acupuncturist, the chiropractor, the, the regular doctor, and everybody in attendance to make sure you're not overdoing it. We're movie magic. We're not supposed to wreck people intentionally. Mm-hmm. You keep your people healthy and well looked after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great seeing uh, Jason Statham in such an early role as well. Uh, he's, he's only done Lockstock and, and Snatch previously i guess yeah did you have him in mind for this film for that role the first person we cast wow because he yeah he hadn't really done action before and yet now it's unthinkable yeah he is an action star but this is really where he cut his teeth i also noticed um i don't know maybe it's just me but it was probably the first role i've ever seen him play where he was kind of not really the bad guy but He's not a good guy either, sort of. He's a bit leery. <laughs> He's fun because he has that edge. Yes. What yes. we felt at the time, and it was a little bit of a locking horns with the studio because they said, well, you can't understand him when he talks. And Oh, come on, just listen. Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I'd only done the Guy Ritchie movies. Right. And we're going, yeah, but look at what he's got. You know, this is unique. It, it'll work. You know, mm. you just got to trust us. And he was supposed to be more heavy edge on the Cockney accent and, and all of that stuff. Trust us. We can, it'll work. And you're going to be really proud for him uh-huh. being in this movie. But no, he's got the edge. He's got the chops and he's got the darkness. Yes. And of course you have Ice Cube and again, cast in a role, a type of role that I don't think he'd ever really done before. And in a genre that he'd never worked in before. How did that one come about? Agents. Yeah. <laughs> simple as that yeah no it's the kind of thing where it was like you know we'd seen him in three kings right where yes. there was some action and stuff and so it seemed it didn't seem out of the question right mm. yeah because that was a straighter non-urban role and we kind of went okay this is doable because sometimes you know it's not necessarily what the person is known for but you can find yeah. a kernel of what they can do. Yeah. You want to say, okay, you know, are you willing to be locked out in the desert? Yeah. You know, there's that other aspect to it. You know, we're going to a place in the middle of nowhere. Mm. This is not your pop tour. Sure. You were your <laughs> yeah. own party. There was, there was nothing else out there. It was like, okay. Isn't this fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, you do develop quite a sort of close knit community, though. You know, yeah. like you really get to know each other. Oh boy, do you! <laughs> <laughs> 
And I guess in terms of him never doing something like this before, people forget that before Kurt Russell was in Escape from New York, he was most known for being a Disney actor. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's Snake Plissken and that's all people think of him as now. But he can act the phone book. Mm. You can give him anything. Yeah. He's a well-trained, deeply talented actor who's game. Mm -hmm. And that's the fun is taking somebody that's the unexpected and taking dramatic actors and putting them where some people might only put the latest genre actor. And you're kind of going, yeah, that's not interesting. Get really good dramatic actors and put them in unexpected situations. And then you have some, it's like, it's why it's fun to like put Sam Neill in things. Mm -hmm. And Keith David, you know, he's a Juilliard trained actor. It was fun to put Roddy Piper in They Live. He certainly had never done anything like that. John is great at pulling out and making them confident enough to trust him to go out on those limbs. Mm, sure. Just as an aside, They Live seemed very relevant during the past four years. <laughs> I keep looking for people to start talking through their gold Rolexes again. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the film you mentioned before, it depicts a matriarchy. And I noticed the military team has as many women as men, and it's led by a woman, which feels quite groundbreaking. I mean, it, it's not 50 years ago, but it is 20 years ago. And I'm not sure I'd seen a film like that at that point. What was the thinking behind that? Was it a deliberate thing or was it just, you know, the best actor for the role, regardless was, of gender? It was deliberate. It was cool. It was the future. And we had kick-ass women like Pam Greer. Mm. I mean, come on. <laughs> And Joanna Cassidy. Yeah. Come on, man. Joanna Cassidy flies through glass windows and is the best robot mm. on Earth from Blade Runner. Come on. Yeah. If you're on Mars, you're going to be tough to have ever gone there. Mm. You're going to be tougher to have survived there. Now let's go into the military there. So those were the guiding forces behind, you know, do I buy this structure on Mars in the future. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the female cast hold their own in, in all of the battle scenes. I mean, there's no differentiation between what they're called upon to do at all. I mean, they, they look be. amazing. Yeah, there can't be. Yeah. Not if you're going to buy that you're on Mars in the future and that what they are facing are the warriors. Yeah. Well, the marauding horde in the movie, they look incredible. Yeah. The makeup design and the costuming for those guys. What was it inspired by? Because a lot of people drew comparison with the rock scene at the time and particular artists, I think, were, were name-checked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's just the mind of Greg Nicotero. Uh -huh. You know, I think that when you want to do the future... It's real interesting to do real nativistic throwback stuff like you've gone through a whole cycle and, you know, what has occurred to get you there. You know, these people that went rogue, went nativistic, went what was happening there, what are the overlaps of civilization on Mars. So it was just kind of cool to draw a real distinction between those layers. Sure. Was that also the fact that it was kind of a Western as well, that? Did that play into it? Kind of a what? A Western. Western. Oh, Western. Um, I don't know, honey. Was it Western approach? Yeah. Yep. He says yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, John famously strongly influenced by Westerns and Howard Hawks in particular. And I've heard him in interviews say that Ghosts of Mars and Vampires were Westerns in disguise. Yeah. And 
it always seemed a shame to me that he hasn't directed one himself. He's written a couple. I was wondering if you'd ever tried to mount a production and it's just one of those genres that studios won't back. I think in the very first sentence when you say Western to a studio, uh, we've had one once that was just so great. And this was pre-Dances with Wolves when I had, we'd been reading the, the Tony Hillerman books. And I go, this would make the best TV series and blah, blah, blah. And like, nobody, nobody wants to see Westerns. And then, of course, Dances with Wolves came and just mowed everybody down. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right. Nobody cares. You know, I've always thought there was a rich mining there of native lore. All the indigenous peoples around the world have some of the best folklore, ghost stories. There's this really cool stuff that's far scarier than white bread stuff. And you kind of go, look, look, look. I know how to scare the pants off everybody. These guys have been doing it for centuries. And it's really, really dark and cool. But it's really hard to get people out of, that's how old-fashioned. Uh-huh. And it's a mixed bag because, you know, we annihilated most of a race of people. You know, you got to face that. Mm. A little hard to glorify, you know, genocide. But what they overlook is this whole other part of the Old West, which 25% were freedmen. Mm. So you've got a richness you can do without glorifying and whitewashing the Old West. Mm. And maybe our genre is a cool way to break into that by using Mm. some of the great folklore, some of the great other things from the other cultures, and some of the truth of what went on. Mm. And I think maybe we could get something going, but they'll probably just say, people don't like horses. <laughs> so I don't what? know. What stops you from rolling your eyes permanently into the back of your head in meetings with people? Oh, like I don't know. I've really been happy with Zoom conferences because I'm a little tiny square mm. and you just kind of go, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, and not return the next call. There are times, you know, where... In fact, whole series have been canceled because I've sat there and kind of gone, you know, you really can't find your ass with both hands because what you're doing isn't scary and you want us to scare people and just throwing blood on something isn't scary and that's not horror and you have to have mythology and you have to create a universe. And I'm like a broken record trying to say this audience is not stupid. Mm. This audience knows that horror is uh, an allegorical format. And you have to speak to truths within us. You have to uh, challenge them. And while we may go through different forms, they went through slasher porn, they went through, you know, all these other things, splatter and all that. At the bottom of it, the horror that survives is stuff that speaks to some truth within the audience. Mm -hmm. You want to have a good platform. You want to have some... What is the story... (laughs) Your son boring him. What is this? <laughs> you sound like the Lion King. Um, what is the story you're trying to tell? You know, why are you telling this story? It can't just be for the one scene in the bathroom where you chop someone's head off. That's not good enough. You know, been there, done that. So it's a smart audience, it's a challenging audience, and you have to speak to what fears people are working out. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Has there been a film that you've worked on that has been very challenging with studios? Like the most challenging? Uh, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Did you have any reservations about Ghosts of Mars, given that you'd had Mission to Mars and Red Planet the year before, and it seemed like Hollywood was going through a Red Planet phase at the time? Uh, no, because all of these things are years out in the making. Mm-hmm. So you all just hit at the same time. You know, it's the kind of thing where you're not really comparing notes with everybody else to see, hey, anybody else on Mars this week? It's that kind of thing where you kind of go, there's how many coming out? Because <laughs> you're generally not aware of it until like too late that someone else is doing a $100 million Mars. You generally are just doing the best movie you can. And most of the time your stories are all different. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while you have a mass collision just going, oh. <laughs> uh, so music is a quite a big part of Ghosts of Mars. Oh, yeah. um, how did that come about, working with Anthrax and all those great guitar heroes? You know, it just seemed like the movie had a heavy metal edge to it. And Guns N' Roses was recording in the same uh, recording studio that John was doing the soundtrack in. Oh, and they had Buckethead with them. Right. And Buckethead performs in a Michael Myers jumpsuit with a Kentucky Fried Chicken you know, bucket on his back. <laughs> yes. And one day when we come into the studio, he's standing stock still in the hallway as Michael Myers. <laughs> right. It's the first clue that Buckethead wants to be on your soundtrack. And then Robin, who was with Guns N' Roses, also wanted to be on And so it started really shaping into this. And at the same time, I can't remember how we got connected with Anthrax, which I think they had been in the studio. So basically it became this thing of, you know, in the coffee lounge. Right. John was bringing in certain elements and then that became a riff throughout. And then Steve Vai came in on the opening track (laughs) and it became like, the attack of the heavy metal guitars. Right. <laughs> it's like the screaming winds of Mars. Mm. It was pretty cool. Right. Mm. I'm a huge fan of John's music work. I was lucky enough to see him play live in the Troxy in London. Were you at the Troxy? That, were you there that Halloween night where they just tore it up? Yeah. 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 <laughs> they tore that one down. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I tell all my friends I've heard John play Halloween on Halloween. Yeah. yeah. No, Daniel was on fire that night. Yeah. That was one of the best performances I've ever seen. We were filming it that night, too. It was a really great show. And the thing that struck me, you mentioned about Buckethead standing there as Michael Myers. When I was stood in the queue outside, there were a lot of people (laughs) in costume. And I thought, wow, what am I getting myself into here? Nicest crowd I have ever been in. Just really, really sweet people. (laughs) Oh, you know, the horror audience, for the most part, is great. And that crowd, that night just rocked. It really did. Totally rocked, because everybody was up for celebrating Halloween. Oh, yeah. Is there any chance that John, Cody, and Daniel will go on tour again once COVID is over? Because a third album just came out. Yeah, they'll be back. They'll be on it again. They've got the third album, and then they've got the new Halloween when it comes out this October. They did the soundtrack for that. Mm. Oh, yeah. More music coming. Good. (laughs) Sound machine roars on. Okay. 20 years on, how do you look back on Ghosts of Mars now? Is there anything you wish you could go back and change? If there were, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. You know, that's one of the dark secrets you keep, you know, locked away. But, you know, I'm really happy with it. I, I think it's just a great roller coaster popcorn movie. It's one that seems like people are starting to rediscover. 
again, its timing was rough. You know, it came out just during the 9-11 times. Mm. And people, as opposed to COVID, where everybody was like eating up horror movies at home, the 9-11 time made everybody want my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think it got a real chance. And now suddenly I'm seeing postings of, hey, you know, I just discovered Ghosts of Mars. And it's like, yeah, 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I don't really care. I think we made a really fun movie. And like you say, that soundtrack rocks. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to see women kicking ass. And out of all the, you know, like you said, there were like three Mars movies. I don't think the other two survived at all. No. One of the things I think John does really well is making movies that stay timeless because the themes under them are timeless. Mm. Don't root them in pop culture. Mm. We root them in bigger picture issues. So the irony is I think Ghosts and Mars will have its day. Yeah. Just like I'm always shocked when people come up and, and tell me Mouth of Madness is their favorite movie. And it's like, wow, were you born when it came out? (laughs) You know, there's stories that just, if they're solid, if you've made them well, they pop up time and again. That's the goal. You want to tell a story that's timeless and it takes people somewhere else. So I'm proud of it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank you. It was really fun. It is. Well, take care. You too. Bye for now. Bye-bye. See ya. And we're back. What a great interview that was. It was a real thrill to talk to Sandy and she was great fun. Yeah. Also a bit nerve wracking with John Carpenter just in the background listening in. Just hovering. Yes. Ever present. He was there for the entire interview, um, which you may pick up in the background because there were a lot of coughs and just random singing at (laughs) one point, which is entertaining to edit. But yeah, it was a really good time and so kind of her to spend Mm. an hour with us talking about that. So Dan, had you seen ghosts of mars before we embarked upon this yeah well this was like right smack bang in my sort of prime of my teenage years Mm. i should have watched this and i probably would have um but no i hadn't watched it until we decided to discuss it for the podcast so it's a fresh viewing for me yes and i had seen it before i saw it at the time it was released not in theaters i saw it on uh dvd because if memory serves me right it kind of just went pretty quickly to dvd here right yes. yeah it came along at the tail end of a long string of movies set on mars mm. which i guess maybe didn't help maybe people were getting a bit tired of mars at that point yeah it is very much a, a time capsule of the time though like it is very early 2000 or late 90s so I, I'm, I'm thinking of other sort of similar movies that came out around about the same time so it's starship troopers mm. uh, 97 pitch black 2000 resident evil 2002, uh, Event Horizon 97. And yeah, it has that sort of sheen of like 90s, 2000s sci-fi. Yeah, it really does. Not too much CGI in this one because some of those movies you mentioned were marred by very early attempts at CGI. Sure. There's a lot of model work in this and a lot of practical stuff, which we talked about with Sandy. So the full-scale sets. I mean, the production looks good yeah i mean especially when sandy revealed that it was just beetroot juice that just blows my mind because it it looks (laughs) yeah great it looks like otherworldly like you're on a martian planet 
Yeah. So it's a great setting for the story, and it gives you some great visuals. Mm. The story itself, I have to say, it kind of plays, as I alluded to in my synopsis, like a greatest hits of John Carpenter movies. Right. You know, cops and criminals joining together as they're under siege from a vicious non-human enemy. Mm. We've seen that ever since one of his earliest movies, Assault from Precinct 13, the sort of mastermind criminal character that's really, really cool and got some great snappy lines. But, you know, Snake Plissken so much so people thought it was a Snake Plissken movie at one point, mm -hmm. which Sandy set us straight. That's not the case. It's just another <laughs> character. Yeah. Digging something up on an alien planet and it assimilating human beings we've seen before with the thing. Mm. You've even got the scene where they don't trust whether the main character is who she claims to be when she returns to the camp after they've locked her outside, which is exactly what happens to McCready in the thing. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a big red fog attacking a civilization <laughs> right. and you think yes. oh, okay but there's the fog too so i don't know i was just going along thinking it just plays like john carpenter's greatest hits and as this was i think to date his last big budget movie mm -hmm. it almost feels like a big mashup party swan song for him for his fans to enjoy because mm. he had he did have a hiatus of, of directing before this film, right? Yeah, so he'd done a steady stream of things every year or two in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So Memoirs of an Invisible Man, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from LA, and Vampires. Mm -hmm. Then you have The Ghost of Mars in 2001, celebrating its 20th anniversary today. Mm -hmm. And then nothing for nine years until The Ward in 2010, mm -hmm. which right. was a much smaller independent kind of movie. So yeah, this feels like his biggest budgeted movie from that era about 28 million wow right and it's all there up on the screen and then some so yeah i think i've seen most of them i haven't seen the ward i did watch vampires recently leading up to um, the sandy king interview i quite like vampires actually i think it's mm. it is a bit of an underrated carpenter film again vampire movies came out around that time so i can see why it yeah. maybe didn't uh, resonate with people as much because you know buffy the vampire slayer was in full swing and it was just vampires galore in the 90s yeah but i think that one is quite a good take on western uh westerns uh whereas <laughs> this one yeah kind of is kind of isn't like you said it is it is tinges of of lots of other carpenter films so maybe it was almost like, yeah, like you said, a swan song, a homage to himself. Yeah, it feels like it. Mm -hmm. The structure of the story, it's a very interesting approach. It is. It's quite different from anything else he's done because so much of what he does is mount almost unbearable suspense mm. and tension and dread and foreboding, and particularly in his classics like The Thing. Whereas this one... The whole frame of it is a flashback, the main body of yeah, the story. it is. Yeah. And it kind of takes you out of it because there, there are like flashbacks within flashbacks and it keeps kind of jumping forward and then flashing back. Like I, I can appreciate movies that are essentially just a giant flashback, but you kind of get immersed in that. You forget it's a flashback. Hmm. But this keeps kind of jumping forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and then and then you'll see one part of a story and then another character will return you see the other part of the same story yeah uh, it was yeah a little kind of took you out of the momentum of the film yeah like when they first arrive on mars you get to see 
what Natasha Henstridge's character does first, and then she relates the story that Jason Statham told her about what the other group saw when they split up. So you sort of yeah. reel back, see the bit where they split up again, and then see the other half of the story. Mm. It, and it does that a couple of times where a it sort of branches times. off and then goes back. And I think at one point, there is a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. flashback. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an amazing story construction. It's not something I remember seeing, certainly not in this genre, for an action mm. horror mm -hmm. movie yes. to couch it in all of these structural complications. It's different. Mm -hmm. On the commentary, John Carpenter said that the reason he did it was he actually wrote it linear to begin with. And then he said, this is so boring. I've seen this all before. I'm going to do it somewhat differently. Uh -huh. But the thing is, maybe we see why people don't do it this way. Because I don't know, it feels like it kind of breaks the suspense, doesn't it? It does. It does. Because we've already seen things already happen. Mm. Like we don't need to see it again, like with more detail. I don't know. There, there are certain scenes that could have been completely cut out and they could have just said it in dialogue oh this happened in 10 seconds rather than show the entire thing again yeah yeah i don't know there were a lot of moments within the film where i did feel they could have tightened up the duration a bit cut out a good half hour 20 minutes of the film and it would have been sort of more streamlined and sort of more left up to the imagination of the viewer mm. as well yeah without showing everything in terms of plot wise one part of the film i felt was kind of a strange approach was when they do escape the town the male character um says oh we should go back we have to go back it's yeah like, why not just incorporate that whole last sequence with the escape so do the bomb exploding thing and the escape and the train all joined together why why split it into two separate it's really strange. It is, I know. that it, it is a moment where you kind of throw your remote at the TV because, <laughs> you know, they managed to escape barely with their lives. Very few of them left at that point. Mm. And then she says, we've got to go back and blow up the nuclear power station. Yeah. Will that work? And the answer is, don't know, could scatter the ghost to the four winds and just kill everybody. Yeah. But hey, let's try it. <laughs> I don't know. Seems like an odd choice. <laughs> it seems like they just tapped an, an extra storyline onto the end. Like they could have ended escaping mm. and, you know, the train goes off into the distance credits, but then they just tapped on this extra, oh, we have to explode this thing. And the bad guy needs to have a big, you know, showdown, big fight sequence. Yeah. We need that. Very odd. <laughs> The film has uh, this uh, idea of a matriarchy mm -hmm. in the society. Yes. This military unit that goes down is led by Pam Greer. Yes. They don't really do an awful lot with it. Mm. It's a bit disappointing, I guess, to see that the matriarchy is just as corrupt as the patriarchy is because there's an obvious reference at the beginning that Melanie might only achieve promotion if she gives up sexual favours, which yeah. is disappointing. Yeah, the character dynamic was interesting. Uh, I did appreciate the, the female lead and the sort of female-led crew, but Pam Gray's character's just kind of killed off like almost secretly, like she doesn't even have a kill scene. You just see her, her decapitated head and it, it almost seemed like a wasted opportunity. It's, it's like Pam Greer, like 
give us some more chance to shine. Yeah, and the same thing happens with Joanna Cassidy. I noticed on my second viewing, this wonderful actress who appeared in so memorably in Blade Runner as Zora, and she's great in the movie,、mm. uh, especially when she's crashing in her hot air balloon. Oh, yes, yes. But、uh, yeah, she gets possessed. She looks as though she just has like a little dizzy spell in the doorway, and then you never see her again.、Mm. So it's、yeah. kind of sad. There were a lot of characters in this movie that were kind of just there, but they didn't have a lot to do. Like even Claire Duvall's character didn't really、mm. do a whole lot. Like I felt like they could have run with her sort of PTSD nervousness and made it a sort of more of a plot point in the movie, but. She's kind of just around,、yeah. and similarly, there's a white guy that's just there. I don't even remember his name. He has a few lines. Oh, Descanso, <laughs> Liam Waite, who was Natasha Henstridge's husband at the time. Oh, really? So, I didn't know. That. I didn't yes, know that. yeah, they had two children. When she was recording the commentary, she was heavily, heavily pregnant with child two. I think <laughs> so.、Oh. He's the one that、uh, manages to carry on firing his weapon even after one of his arms has been severed by、yes. a razor sharp frisbee. Yes, go you. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask: Were those projectiles? Was that?、C- CGI or was that some sort of composited effect? I think it is CGI,、okay. and actually the decapitations by frisbee are quite good, nice and quick, so you don't、yeah. linger on it too、the、long. Many, many of them.、Though. Many, many of them. In fact, most of them do die by frisbee,、mm. which is <laughs> unexpected. It is. It is. But it is.、Uh, <laughs> I'd not seen it before, so、uh, I guess、uh, marks for originality. Yeah. But yeah, many of the characters are dispensed with very quickly, and it's not sort of heroic or lingered on in no, any way. No. No emotional impact at all. Like characters are just offed, and I had to sort of rewind and yeah, who's left? I don't. Like, <laughs> no one seems to be at all concerned that their team is very rapidly getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, not much space for memorable characters. Yeah, I actually did think Jason Statham and Ice Cube as well were quite memorable characters because they had. Characterizations like,、mm. as much as Jason Statham was a slimy, sleazy scumbag, he was a slimy, sleazy scumbag that you know you wanted to hate, and it was something to kind of hold on to in terms of character dynamics. And also, I don't know whether I've seen him be sort of a bad guy of sorts in a film. Well, I haven't seen a great deal of his oeuvre. It has to be said, <laughs> apart from that ridiculous shark thing, that was pretty hilarious. Oh, the Meg, right? Yeah.、Yes. No, I've seen yeah, I've seen a number of his movies, and for the most part, he's exactly the same in every movie.、Right. He's just Jason、yeah. Statham. So it was actually quite refreshing <laughs> seeing him play a, a different type of character. He wasn't the squeaky clean action hero. He was a bit of a sleaze. He was, yeah, and I was a bit disappointed to see that Melanie finally gave in to his advances. Yes, on his third attempt.、Yes. Persistence. Yes, that's the way to a woman's heart. That's the key. <laughs> just persistence. Yeah, just lock her in a six-inch steel room that's impregnable, and then say, "This might be our last chance." And then she'll say, "Oh, screw it." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe she just feels like using him. May as well. I don't know. <laughs> don't know.、Um, Ice Cube. Ice Cube. Yeah. I mean, Ice Cube was. I guess playing himself,、uh, it wasn't really a character. I did note that all the sort of criminals, all of all of his men, are non-white. 
Mm. And the only sort of good character in the whole movie uh, that isn't white is Pam Greer. So that's interesting. Yeah, it is a bit tricky in that regard because if it is basically a Western and it is deploying the same tropes in terms of primitivism versus civilization. Sure. And at one point, Melanie says, as far as they're concerned, we're the invaders. They are, aren't they? Yeah, of course they are. Yeah. She says, you know, this is about dominion. Mm. This isn't their planet anymore. Well, kind of is. Yeah. Can you just leave? (laughs) I mean, it's not a very nice place. Nobody seems particularly taken with it. Yeah. So... Just leave? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I I did want to ask, uh, I didn't really understand the air, how people breathed on this planet. So it it was kind of 80, it was 84% terraformed. Mm. So it did have oxygen of sorts, but they still had to wear these funky goggle glasses things to breathe somehow. I don't know how that makes someone breathe when you have... Something over your eyes? I don't know. But <laughs> not everyone wore them. No. Which was interesting. Like, Desolation Williams and, and all of his crew didn't wear them. Half of the other people didn't wear them. None of the ghosts wore them. I mean, I guess they've been possessed by some other creature. Yeah. So I didn't really understand the whole air and oxygen breathing part of the film. No, it wasn't very consistent. I mean, I know that when you have contact lenses, they have to be permeable so your eyes don't suffocate. Right. But I didn't realize that that was a major method of breathing oxygen. Breathing through your eyes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's quite true. And in terms of scientific accuracy, technically, as I mentioned in the intro, this planet has a third of Earth's gravity. So they shouldn't really be walking, running along. Yeah. They should be floating in slow motion. <laughs> Bouncing about, yeah. So Okay, yeah. I do think the premise is actually really interesting. The fact that they're on Mars mm. and these people are taken over by either a microorganism or a spirit. I'm still unsure of what is going on there. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen a haunted ghost movie set in space before? Is that something that exists? No, it's kind of a crossover. I mean, you mentioned Event Horizon. I mean, that kind of... That is one, yeah, sure. Sort of has the same sort of things. But yeah, you could interpret it both ways, that it's a microorganism that invades the body and takes over, or it's supernatural. So yeah, it kind of... Mm does both for good measure so i mean i really like that premise and and i I feel like they could have explored it even more like they could have had more of the crew get possessed by the ghosts and you know um having to deal with that the same sort of premise that you have with zombies you know Mm. how you get bitten and you become a zombie like slowly the crew could become more like ghosts but it, it was quite instantaneous they were possessed like straight away and it was immediately obvious because they just started looking at the hands or started scratching their faces. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> inserting safety pins in their eyelashes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and they weren't the sharpest ghosts, to be honest, because like when they had the option of loads of military people who were armed to the teeth in the room, they decided to infect the oldest man who was locked up behind bars. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they're not very clever, but apparently cells make people very stupid in this movie because all of Ice Cube's posse gets tricked yeah. into walking into the cell so they can just close the door behind them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yes. made me laugh. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about. So John Carpenter has come out to say that this was more of a tongue-in-cheek film. It was supposed mm. to be ridiculous, supposed to be funny and campy. I'm not sure whether I got that, but on second viewing, 
it seems much more apparent. Like Desolation's crew being locked in the cell, that's just like ridiculous. Or one of the guys that chops off his thumb. Um, and, there, and there are like some action-y, classic, almost one-liners in this film as well that just so absurd. Yeah, and the ending is ridiculous too. And they're almost laughing in the final shot. Yes, um, it, yeah. it feels like it's after he's shouted cut, but they've just kept going. And maybe it would have been more fun if they'd pushed that angle even more. Mm. Or that it, if it had been like really schlocky and really silly. Yeah. Like I did find all the decapitation scenes just so absurd that they were hilarious, but they could have been even more crazy, gruesome deaths and not just decapitations every time. Yeah. And also the fact that you mentioned that last scene just seemed over the top, cheesy action movie. More of that in the movie have more mm. of that between ice cube and natasha like have that sort of buddy cop dynamic between them throughout the film that would have been yeah it would have made it much more fun yeah you would have made a good cop you would have made a good criminal nah and then, <laughs> <laughs> because that yeah. came out of nowhere at the end and it just seems so out of place yeah i enjoyed it too i think it would have been fun to have that tone all the way through the movie mm. but it's not quite as overt perhaps john is a little bit dry yeah maybe people sure. don't necessarily notice when he's joking <laughs> last thing to talk about the music yes dan i'm glad you're sitting down right you may be surprised to hear that i'm not up on my bucket head music <laughs> it's a really interesting combination of artists here it's almost like a super group of metal and rock bands he seems to have like every guitarist ever playing on this soundtrack mm -hmm. so uh thrash metal band anthrax virtuoso steve vi mm -hmm. buckethead mm -hmm. former guns and roses and nine inch nails guitarist robin frink are you familiar with these people yeah um i would say these were kind of 10 years earlier mm. so there are a lot of 80s late 80s musicians so i don't know not really up to date with when this movie came out 2001 right like you would expect for 2001 you would have bands like limp biscuit or deftones or corn or sort of all that sort of new metal stuff but uh. these artists are more kind of 80s middle. Right. Yeah, because I guess Resident Evil, you mentioned that famously had a big tie in with Marilyn Manson, didn't it? Mm, exactly. There's some of it that I really like. I like the opening title. I do too. Yeah, that's a great John Carpenter theme. Yeah, and, and the model work, I actually was very impressed with that. The train looked real mm. to me. I love that sort of early noughties era where they were doing miniatures and bigotures like on Lord of the Rings and mm -hmm. then combining it with live action photography. It really sells it for me because because you can't beat shooting a real object. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm glad that they did practical rather than CGI, because I'm not sure whether 2001 CGI would have handled that. <laughs> no. But yeah, in other places, I wasn't sure about the music, because it seemed to be ever-present yes. throughout the movie, which, again, along with the flashback within a flashback structure, kind of dissipated the suspense a lot mm. of the time. Yeah, it did feel almost needle-droppy, like it almost seems like an action scene is about to commence. Let's start the music and it will just kind of like fade in and then bang, action scene. 
turn up the music and then the action scene ends and then the music just drops away. It seemed almost like too formulaic and almost took away from the tension of the scene I found. Mm. And um, because it was metal as well, it was just like very in your face, volume up to 11 for like a good chunk and then it would end. There was kind of no sort of nuance to the music I found. No, you're right. Yeah. There weren't sort of light and shade and changes in rhythm as well for a scene. So an action scene doesn't have lulls and sudden fast propulsive bits or it doesn't speed up to a climax. It was just sort of this Steady. steady jamming session. Yeah. Just double kicks all the way. <laughs> yeah, you watch the behind the scenes and John Carpenter's in the studio with all of these guys and they're having a great time mm. jamming together. Sure, sure. And if you love this kind of stuff, you're going to be in your element. But yeah, it's not for me. Mm. Yeah, uh, I did find some of the more sort of dialogue heavy scenes. They had quite ambient, ethereal guitar work, which worked well to me. Mm. Um, all of those scenes worked better than the action uh, scenes yeah i'd agree with that that was where they were sort of experimenting and, mm. and john carpenter's synths are in there and yeah it's, oh, it's right, right, good right. stuff yeah some of that yeah some really really cool sort of atmospheric effects on the instruments yeah i i don't know i think if i'd seen this when it came out because i was very fully into metal at the time in my sort of late teens so i think i would have really enjoyed this movie when it came out yeah yeah, it's not really me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, it's the Mobley Awards. It's where we bring to the table our favourite projectile flinging parts of the film in a number of beetroot juice stained categories. <laughs> Best quote. Well, I think this is a good follow-on from The Quiet Earth because oh, we have... I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, we have the prototypical Last Man on Earth quote and it's uh, Melanie to Jason Statham. Jason Statham. Yes. Um, Maybe I'd sleep with you if you were the last man on Earth, but we're not on Earth. <laughs> I know, I know. Epic burn. <laughs> I know, it's a good Ooh. twist on the genre, isn't it? Yeah. But then she gives in later, so, oh, oh I was disappointed. No yeah. Well, I don't know. Jason Statham. He's pretty tasty. Well... If you like bad boys. <laughs> uh, so that was also my favourite quote, but my second favourite. And it's not really, I don't know It's a, whether it's a favourite quote, but it's such a gritty action movie quote is uh, when they first arrive at the deserted town and uh, Melanie says yeah it's, it's it's Friday night the place should be packed I mean a whole 12 hours before sun up with money to burn whores to fuck and drugs to take oh. instead we got a graveyard it's, oh. Oh, it's <laughs> the only line you could only have in an action movie or sci-fi movie like this yes yeah, it's very pulpy as well. Mm. Best hair or costume? Well, Jason Statham has some hair. <laughs> wow, Which, yeah, that's a point. I mean, it's not much, but it's something, and it's I was yeah. surprised, you know? It's it's like seeing Bruce <laughs> Willis with hair in Death Becomes yeah. Her. It's, it's just, you just don't. His look is no hair. Jason Statham has no hair, ever. So... I was, yeah, I commend him for, you know, having hair. And I'm, I'm sorry, Jason, for your hair loss. 
<laughs> I'm sure he laments the loss of his hair, but he does look great without it. Mm, so. He does. He does. <laughs> My favourite piece of hair or costume is actually a, a first here. It's a combo. It's both hair and costume. Oh, yes. Because Melanie's hair tie looks as though it's four thick ropes of hair. Oh, yeah. Of her yes. blonde hair sort of wrapped around her ponytail. And... It matches the colour of her hair perfectly, but it can't be hair because it's a hair tie. Anyway, I was just constantly thinking, is that <laughs> is that her hair? Is that no, it's not. It's not. I can see the bottom, it's not. Oh right. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was great. <laughs> Most naughty moment. I would have to say the sort of the influence of, of heavy metal in films. So I've already mentioned mm. uh, Resident Evil and, and there's movies like The Matrix and Queen of the Damned. That sort of cool factor, that heavy metal and uh, sort of more gritty techno used to always be highlighted in um, films like this. Yeah. Blade as well, similar style yeah. and aesthetic and music choices. Yeah, so in the noughties, all about that metal. It was, yeah. Made made for some great album tie-ins, I'm sure. Mm, exactly. That's uh, that's probably why. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Ways to sell soundtracks. Oh, yeah. For me, it would have to be Mars, because oh, we'd already yes. had Mission to Mars and Red Planet, both in 2000, and Ghost of Mars sort of <laughs> limped across the finish line a year later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of them, it's, it's kind of interesting that I don't think there's one that stands out from any of these, like Red mm-hmm. Planet and Mission to Mars, and all of them have got problems, bits that are interesting, but I don't know what it is about that, because, that, you know, whenever you have these clutches of movies, like Dante's Peak and Volcano coming out at the same time, Armageddon and Deep Impact, The Abyss Leviathan and Deep Star Six we mm-hmm. did for Iconicon. Right, yeah. They, they've all got bits that are interesting, but there isn't, like, one that's a stone cold classic and another one and that's that's terrible they're just all sort of uh, you know variable yeah <laughs> favorite scene my favorite scene is where they're trying to escape the mining outpost and it's <laughs> them driving along is it yeah them driving along in a moon buggy the town behind them is in flames there's explosions going off and this horde of extras and martian ghosts chasing after mm. them throwing things at them and and it's you just look at this all in one shot all happening at once on this massive uh, set that they've constructed and you just think wow this is pretty epic actually mm. yeah yeah it really is uh actually mine wasn't quite that scene it was the one before that scene so it's it's this kind of the siege part of of that escape oh, where they're, yeah. they're trapped in the building and then uh the ghosts have built some sort of battering ram and they're they're sort of trying to get in and then it, it's just a huge standoff i feel like it's one of the only parts of the film where the really jarring heavy metal music actually does work in that scene Mm. and it it feels really claustrophobic and and there's a lot of tension and you just don't know how they're going to get get out of the situation and for me it was the most sort of action-packed and um, high thrill part of the film yeah there's a lot of amazing stunts in that as well like full body burns and yeah People being thrown into walls and yeah. Yeah, that's good. Most cliche sci-fi moment. 
it has to be the bomb fixes everything, right? Yeah. The, the reactor bomb explosion plot point that, that just fixes everything, and it's pretty much in every sci-fi ever made. Yeah. You said this on The Quiet Earth, and I noted it down here. Yes, Dan's right. Gotta blow something up to end <laughs> the movie. Yeah. It has to be sort of a suicide mission, because they're not really sure if they're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this one is especially dumb, because they don't even know if this is going to work. I mean, at least in Aliens, they're pretty sure that a thermonuclear explosion is going to kill these biological entities. Mm. What it's going to do to the ghosts of Mars, just spray them across the four winds, I should think, and and infect the entire planet in the fallout. Yeah. Best special effect! Uh, You've said it before, I actually really do like the train model pulling into the Mm. station Mm. with live actors... I think it's pretty good, and I, and I do love the combination of miniatures and composited live-action elements. Because one of the people that are on the platform even walks right up to the train and knocks on the door. Mm, right. And, you know, clearly it's just, you know, green set pieces and what have you, but it's it looks pretty good to mm-hmm. me, even now. And I think shooting a sizable miniature the right way, you know, all these people that knew how to light and shoot this stuff with the right lenses and the right lighting and the right speed of the camera i guess it's probably a bit of a lost art now they probably don't do it it's probably all cgi and Mm, people standing in front of green screens but yeah i really liked it i thought it looked great Mm, mm. Uh, i really liked the hot air balloon exploding uh, because it Ah, looked like a a practical effect as well and Yeah. yeah very impressive explosion uh i did find the editing a bit Odd though, because it did the Chuck Norris thing where it just plays the same scene again and again, like repeat with a slightly different camera angle. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a bit. Funny. And with dissolves. Yeah, lots, lots of dissolves. Favorite sound effect. My favorite was uh, one one of the less effective jump scares, which was where you have a slow pan down to reveal an arm sticking out of a cupboard when they're first exploring the deserted Ah, outpost. And, um, you know, there's this tension build, and then when they open the door, the arm just falls off because it's sort of severed at the elbow. And uh, it's accompanied by a very loud metal scraping cutting sound effect on the soundtrack. So it's just like, yeah, this is a severed arm, and... Orally, this is how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) I I was confused by that sound, actually, because I thought, did the door do that? What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, sharp doors. I know. Be careful. (laughs) Most funniest moment. I think we're both going to say exactly the same scene, aren't we? It's it's the scene where the guy cuts his own thumb off after trying to open a can with a machete. Right, yeah. I mean, that. I, I would say that was intentionally funny. I think... It is. I think John Carpenter assembled that yeah. for, for the laugh. Oh, definitely. It works really well. And again, it sort of comes out of nowhere tonally. I it wasn't does. expecting it, it at all. So yeah, top tip out there, kids. Do not try to open a can of food with a machete when you're high on some sort of nitrous oxide mix. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it's not good. It was bound to happen. <laughs> when, you, when you see him holding the can with his thumb outstretched, it's, <laughs> it's just bad news. Oh, yeah. Uh, funny for me, actually, I did have that as, as kind of my second choice, but the funniest scenes for me were all the decapitation scenes because they were so really? quick and so abrupt 
and it's just the fastest way to kill any character and and so many of them as well i oh, just yeah. roared with laughter every single time and especially the guy that gets his firstly he gets his arm severed and he's still shooting away and then just the head decapitation just tops it off and it's hilarious yeah that's descanso yeah he keeps going and almost after his head's cut off he keeps going just a flesh wound yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's our move please yeah. hi i'm sandy king carpenter producer of movies like they live ghost of mars village of the dam and other movies like Mouth of Madness. And you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Oh, hold on. Okay, John says I need to say Prince of Darkness. Uh, (laughs) Hi, I'm Sandy King Carpenter, producer of movies like They Live, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. There you go. Thank you. He says okay. Uh, (laughs) Tick of approval. Ah, you guessed it, listeners. It's the most important part of the pod. Final verdict time. Should ghosts of Mars be set free to travel beyond Mars and possess Earth's people with its Martian brilliance? Or should it be shot (laughs) with a shiny chrome submachine gun and be sealed in an ancient mine? The oubliette, if you will, never to be spoken of again. Conrad, this is our third Carpenter film. What were your final thoughts? Well, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because so much of it is sort of like a greatest hits of John Carpenter. And it feels like he's having fun with it, especially in some places like the thumb chopping off and the final scene. Mm. But for me, it was the the structure of it, the flashback structure, the overuse of dissolves as scene transitions, even within shots. And the the constant sort of jam session soundtrack sort of, it kind of robbed it of suspense. And as a sort of full ahead action movie, it just kind of, again, because of those elements I mentioned, didn't feel very propulsive and exciting. So there are interesting elements to it. And I think if you're a diehard Carpenter fan, it's kind of like a big budget send off for sort of the tail end of his career. I think he's pretty much in in retirement now, although Sandy mentioned that there may be another film on the horizon. Mm. But, I mean, for me, it it just, it doesn't quite stand up to the rest of his filmography. And I'm not sure if somebody asked me, I'm not sure I would say this from his later movies, this is a standout. I'm not sure I would recommend it to people. So Mm, I'm I'm sorry to say I'd probably leave it in there. How about you? Yeah. I would say as well that this movie, it has potential. It had so much potential. I really did like the premise of of Ghosts on Mars. I mean, mixing up a a haunting movie with with sci-fi, I I think that's that's Hmm. a great idea. I would love to see that. Um, But I'm not sure whether this does it well. There's there's so much uh, grey area in, in the plots and the characters. And I do agree. I think... John probably had a lot of fun making this movie and it probably was a lot of fun, uh, you know, uh, you know, assembling sort of a tongue-in-cheek because of campy, not-so-serious film. Mm. But I did find tonally it didn't come across the way that he seemed to envision. I'm not sure. I think I 
probably would have enjoyed this movie when it did come out, me being an angsty metalhead in the <laughs> early 2000s. But watching it now, I'm not sure whether it really sort of stands the test of time. I think it is very much a, a time capsule of 2001. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not sure <laughs> whether I would also recommend this to anyone. No. So it's a handsome production, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's it's necessarily one that you should seek out, maybe. Okay. I'm afraid we're just going to have to pop it back in there and uh, close the crypt. Yeah. I've been known to change a few minds. No, okay. No, Get no. back in there. <laughs> don't tell Sandy. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sandy. <laughs> sorry, Sandy. We did love talking to you, though. So thank mm, you so much yes, for coming did. to talk to us. Yes, and so many behind-the-scenes details. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating production, and I think they did an amazing job with the uh, budget that they had. So. Mm. so, listeners, if you want to keep up with our future episodes and our future guests that we will have, uh, you can follow us on all our social media platforms as Movie Oubliette, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And just as Chris did, we love hearing from you. Yes, and like our new patrons, you can support us even more by becoming a Patreon patron for a dollar a month. You can get access to extended segments of the podcast, and for $5, you get access to that coveted minister that we release once mm. a month discussing new films. Yes, and for this episode, of course, you will get the full interview with Sandy King Carpenter as a patron, which includes many additional uh, discussions and much more detail because we talked to her for an hour. You also get access to a video that we mm. recorded discussing The Ghost from Mars at great length that we couldn't fit in this episode. Yes. Because it's always tricky when you've got an interview and a discussion to have. So, yeah. Talking about content, Conrad, what are we doing next time? Well, next time it's a patron's choice episode. We gave them a list of fantasy films mm. because uh, we haven't done anything with fantasy elements for quite some time. Lots of horror and sci-fi. Yes. Um, so we gave them The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Excalibur, Jabberwocky, Powder, Reign of Fire, The Sword and the Sorcerer, Snow White, A Tale of Terror, Time Bandits, and What Dreams May Come. Mm -hmm. And the votes came flying in. And? Let me just count them. The winner was Reign of Fire. Oh, dragons. Dragons, yes. So I have never seen this movie. This is a 2002, so we're still in the same era as Ghosts mm -hmm. of Mars post-apocalyptic science fantasy film directed by Rob Bowman, starring Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, Isabella Skorupko, and Gerard Butler. <laughs> All in one movie, if you wow. can believe it. I have never seen this movie. I've never seen this movie either. I mean, we haven't done Dragon since Dragon Slayer, so looking forward we to this. We haven't, no. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. I think it'll be fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, thanks, patrons, for voting. Yes, it's democracy in action amongst a limited few yes. who paid for the honour. That's not democracy, <laughs> is it? That's terrible. <laughs> well, we appreciate it, nonetheless. We do. <laughs> yes, it does mean that we get some interesting choices that maybe we wouldn't have picked, mm. so I'll look forward to that in the next episode. Yes, so tune in next time, listeners. Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs> We review the films others tend to forget. Come
Tides up. Time to stay alive.